Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today on the podcast, we're talking with author and scientist Bill Strever. Strever is a biologist living in Alaska. His full-time job is doing environmental impact studies for industry. In his spare time, Strever is a writer, and his 2009 book, Cold, Adventures in the World's Frozen Places, became a New York Times bestseller and a New York Times notable book of the year. This year, Strever has ventured to the other end of the thermometer with his new book, Heat, Adventures in the World's Fiery Places. Today we're talking with Strever about heat and a few of his fiery adventures. He tells us about his personal interactions with fire, some of which were painful and some of which were surprisingly not. We touch on the history of global warming. And finally, we talk about Strever's visit to a particle collider where scientists have measured temperatures of 7 trillion degrees. That's today on the Physics Central Podcast. Bill Strever is the author of the book Heat, but he's also a character in it. For this project, he traveled all over the world. He tried some new and sometimes dangerous things, and he tried to experience, not just talk about, heat. So one of the first challenges he decided to take on was firewalking. So for starters, I, and I think this is probably true of a lot of people, I've always, you know, in my mind, I've heard of firewalkers and had some vague notion about firewalking and thought it must be some kind of a weird gimmick. And it didn't take me very long into my book research, my literature review, to find out that, that there are people that firewalk and it's, it's not a gimmick in the sense of doing anything special with your feet or there's no trick to it. The only trick is, is the physics of it. Yes, physics tells us that if you firewalk in the right way, it's actually safe. These are the things that need to be kept in mind. Firewalkers walk over coals, not burning embers. This is an important distinction to make. If you touch your hand to the metal part of a hot stove, it will burn you almost instantly. Metal is a good thermal conductor, which means it passes heat very quickly. But coals are better thermal insulators, they don't pass heat quite as quickly. So you can touch them briefly and they don't have time to burn you. But that window of safety is brief, so it's important to keep moving. It's not fire standing. It's not fire loitering around. It's fire walking. You know? And if you don't walk and continue to walk, if you, if you stop and leave your feet in contact, uh, say to pick up a cell phone call or something, you will be burned. There's no doubt. Running is actually a bad idea as well. If you run, you might push the balls of your feet down into the embers, which will burn you. And even though Strever knew the physics, knew that he would be safe, he says it was hard to put theory into practice. And I was fairly cavalier about it because I had read enough about it. But then, you know, when I stepped up next to that fire, and th these are hot fires, it's the real deal, um, uncomfortably hot when you're sort of standing in front of it, waiting to take your turn, walking across the coals. And I suspect that almost any scientist, no matter how much they knew uh, the physics of this thing, and no matter how much they knew the statistics, standing there and taking that first step 
is a bit of a thing to to go through. You know, I, I don't want to over dramatize it, but that first step is a kind of a magical step, and then you come out the other end and you realize that you're not burned, and you just did something that really every neuron in your brain except for those very few that understand the physics of it, every neuron in your brain is telling you, man, that was stupid. Heat is a transfer of energy between two bodies. Specifically, it's the kinetic energy that's contained in atoms and molecules. Kinetic energy is the energy of motion. So effectively, temperature is a measure of how fast atoms are moving. Adding heat to a system makes the atoms more energetic makes them move faster. And this can cause problems for many systems. Strever visited the sites of house fires, where flames can reach thousands of degrees. He saw metal filing cabinets and silverware that had been melted almost beyond recognition. In some cases, the increased motion of atoms can make normally rigid structures very soft, even liquid. In some cases, this is actually a phase change, like when ice melts into water. Sometimes heat can spark a chemical reaction, like burning. Strever left his firewalking experience unharmed, but he knew that if he was going to understand the full power of heat, he'd have to experience its destructive power. So Strever sat down with a candle and a stopwatch, and he held his hand directly above the flame, for five seconds. One of the first questions I asked Strever was, why would you do that? I, I wanted to see what it felt like to be burned without really putting myself at any serious risk. Because, uh, you know, a big part of the story of heat, as, as I told it, does involve situations where people have been badly burned, forest fires, house fires, that kind of thing. You know, when I, when I set out to write the book, I had actually intended to interview some people that were badly burned. And, and I thought to myself, well, I should at least have some first-hand knowledge of how painful this really is. Holding your hand over a flame for a few seconds and increasing the amount of time of contact is, is really, really excruciating. And, and one thing I took from that was that I realized that it would be very difficult for me to do respectful interviews of people that have actually been badly burned. I, I felt less and less comfortable going and talking to someone who had been through that experience in, in real life, not just a five-second candle trick, and saying to them, hi, I'm a writer. Can we talk about this terrible thing that happened to you? So, so the candle flame gave me that firsthand experience, and it also said to me, maybe back off on the idea of intruding on people's lives when they're dealing with this kind of pain. Wow, so it, it really did influence what you decided to investigate and include in the book? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, I should add... Uh, People often talk to me and they say, that seems like kind of a crazy thing to do, whether it's this candle flame thing or any number of things I've done over the years for my science and in some cases for my writing. And at least when scientists point that out to me, I, I want to say, well, you know, don't forget guys like Isaac Newton. He was out there putting things into his eye socket, as I understand it, to understand how distorting his uh, eyeball would distort the way he saw the world. And, of course, there's lots of other stories of scientists that do things in order to collect data that are somewhere between uncomfortable and incredibly insane. This actually isn't even the most dangerous thing that Strever did for this book. 
He also took a walk through Death Valley, where temperatures in the sun may exceed 120 degrees. This is definitely more dangerous than holding your hand over a candle. Strever and his companion stayed hydrated. They tried to stay in the shade where they could find it, but they both suffered from heat rash and heat exhaustion for days afterward. The number one weather-related cause of death in the U.S. is heat. Not tornadoes, not floods, heat. In the 1820s, a physicist named Joseph Fourier was studying the transfer of light and heat, and he realized something. The Earth is warmer than it should be. Using some basic physics ideas about the transfer of heat and factoring in the size of the Earth and our daily rotation away from the sun, our planet should be significantly colder than it is. So something other than direct sunlight is keeping our planet habitable. Fourier, among the other things he did, he realized that the Earth was warmer than it should be, and he wondered why that was, and he explored some different ideas, and ultimately he concluded that it was because our atmosphere must trap heat. And he didn't call it global warming, but he, he was sort of attributed with the idea of greenhouse effect. Decades later, in the 1860s, another scientist named John Tyndall tried to figure out exactly what it was about Earth's atmosphere that was keeping the heat in. And he experimented for quite a while with, with different gases. So he put different gases into this apparatus he invented. And he couldn't get any of these gases to trap heat. He said they were as transparent to heat as they were to light, but he kept trying different gases. And eventually he tried what I think he called carbonic acid, which um, today we would call carbon dioxide. And his so to speak, his needles went off the scale. So all of a sudden he'd found this gas that could definitely trap heat in the Earth's atmosphere, and then he found several other gases that could do the same thing. So humans have known for quite some time about the greenhouse effect and the role that carbon dioxide plays in it. But our perspective on it has changed. But Tyndall and, and many other people after Tyndall, well into the 1900s, said, this is great. You know, and remember, most of these guys are working in places like England, right? So, so they're saying, this is great. You know, there's, there's nothing like having southern Mediterranean temperatures in England if we can make that happen. So, so carbon dioxide may not be such a bad thing. In fact, it's only been in the past 30 or 40 years that we humans have realized that due to the greenhouse effect and increasing carbon emissions, we actually have a heating problem. And, and really, even up into the 1970s, and, and you know, some of your listeners may remember this, but in the 1970s, the big worry was about the coming ice age, the return of the ice age. And there was even, I believe, a, a major story in magazines like Time magazine about how could we prevent the, the coming ice age and we could scatter coal dust across the Arctic to, uh, to change the albedo of the sea ice, to change the way that the sea ice reflects heat. Remember that as a general rule, white surfaces reflect light. So the ice in Antarctica reflects light, and it reflects it right up and out of the atmosphere. So that's lost heat. Black coal dust would absorb that heat and keep it here on Earth. And that would lead to a warming of the planet, which is absolutely right. Really bad idea. I'm glad nobody did it, but it absolutely would have worked if they'd had enough coal dust. So, but the point is that the... the Knowledge of, of climate change is, is an old knowledge. There's nothing new about that. 
there is some realization starting around the 1970s that this could be a problem and not necessarily a good thing. So whatever benefits it has will also come with some uh, a cost. Obviously, scientists have changed their conclusions about the direction that Earth's climate is headed in. It's scary sometimes for scientists to admit that they were wrong, partly because there are people who might misinterpret this and lose faith in all scientific conclusions. Even worse, there are people who might use it to actively undermine science as a whole. But Strever says he thinks it's more important to be honest about the scientific process. You know, it's at some level I'm so accustomed to uh, anti-scientists, if that's the right word, attacking me or attacking my work or attacking work that I believe in that it, it doesn't really bother me. It's just part of the ongoing noise that's out there. But but one thing I did try to convey, and, and not in a huge way in this book, but I, you will find places scattered through the book where I try to convey that there is scientific debate around details of certain things. So, so an example would be there's a, a relatively short passage in the book where I talk about climate change and how that might or might not affect the future of wildfires and forest fires in America. And people are divided on that. Scientists continue to debate, and we don't to debate, and we don't really know the answer. And that's okay. That's part of how science works: is that people debate things until they zero in on on a firm answer. Strever's book contains a lot of physics, and I wanted to know. What, among all of these things that he looked into, was his favorite physics lesson? Oh, yeah, that's easy. You know, the, the one thing I'm sure I will remember the rest of my life that I experienced writing heat, and, and a lot of people think I'm going to say fire walking or something like that. But but for me, really, it was going into the tunnel at the, at the collider, the super collider in Brookhaven, New York. The Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, or RIC, is a particle accelerator located at Brookhaven National Lab on Long Island. This machine takes atoms of gold and accelerates them to nearly the speed of light. There's actually two beams of gold atoms going in opposite directions around this massive circular track. And then at certain points on the track, those beams cross and the atoms collide. This collision is so energetic that it breaks the atoms apart into their fundamental particles, quarks and gluons. And for a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, those particles exist in a weird, soupy concoction. This strange brew is what would have dominated our universe a fraction of a second after the Big Bang. So a few years ago, the scientists at RIC were able to measure the temperature of this particle soup, and it came in at a peak temperature of 7 trillion degrees Celsius. That's about 12 and a half trillion degrees Fahrenheit. The core of our sun is 15 million degrees. That's 400,000 times cooler these temperatures are just really inconceivable. So, so the experience I had, obviously I wasn't in the collider uh, while the, the gold nuclei were circulating, but I was down in the tunnel between experiments. And I, I think that for me was a very unique experience to, to see the collider, to spend the better part of a day with a 
wonderful physicist named Barbara Jasek who um, showed me around. And to see and at least begin to get a feeling for what it takes to pull off these kind of experiments and how much we learn from that and what the big surprises are, uh, even in modern physics with all the theoretical stuff that goes behind it, you can still get surprises. And in fact, in, in the case of those experiments, they did get a surprise. They had no idea that the, the matter uh, that exists at, at many trillions of degrees would behave the way it did. And in fact, it turns out to behave the same way that matter behaves at very, very cold temperatures. What Strever means is that at these extreme temperatures, the porridge of particles appears to flow like a fluid with zero resistance. This is actually the same thing that happens when you cool helium down to just a few degrees above absolute zero. Helium doesn't solidify at those temperatures. It stays a liquid, and it flows with no resistance. Researchers still don't quite understand why materials have these similar properties at these extreme temperatures. But at these extremes, you can learn things about matter that you can't learn normally. So whether it's a few thousand degrees Celsius or a few trillion, scientists still have a lot of questions about why matter behaves the way it does in the presence of heat. As I said earlier, Strever's book is a combination of science writing, travel writing, history, and personal narrative. He calls it a tapestry. I felt like it was more of a cocktail. For some readers, the additional ingredients can serve to disguise the bitter taste of science, help it go down a little easier. And for some readers, those extra ingredients may serve to enhance the science. It just depends on your personal taste. Thank you to Bill Strever for being on the podcast. Once again, his newest book is called Heat, Adventures in the World's Fiery Places. You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. Oh, a note for our regular listeners. You may have noticed that we're now calling the podcast the Physics Central podcast rather than the Physics Buzz podcast. Have no fear, we're not making any changes to our programming. We're just bringing the podcast under the Physics Central umbrella. PhysicsCentral.com is, of course, our parent website. That's where you can find more podcasts, the Physics Buzz blog, resources, so much more stuff. You should really go check it out. You can also find this podcast on iTunes by searching Physics Central, one word. We'll still be updating the podcast every week. So as always, I'm Calla Cofield. Be sure to tune in next week for another Physics Central podcast.